everybody, welcome to Spin Cycle Podcast, a podcast talking to the personalities, the groups and the brands that make London and the UK an incredible place to be a cyclist. Today we've got someone I know very well and I know actually was an inspiration for one of the guests that we had on uh, at the start of this season. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Gareth Winter. Gareth, welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks for having me. I'm, uh, it's a privilege to be here. No, of course. Like I know, we. I think I was one of the. You were one of the actually the first people I spoke to about the podcast as well. So, um, really glad we could finally get some time with you. Obviously, this is the first season. There's already been a few out. People know the general structure, but first section we'll do. You know, who were you? How did you get into cycling? The second part, I thought we'd have quite a good conversation with Gareth, mainly about where he is in the bike industry. Um, you guys will find out probably in the first section that. Gareth comes from a cycling family. He's been in the industry for a long time and has been in the cycling world for a long time. And a lot of our uh, listeners, viewers, see, see newer cyclists, so it would be really great to have Gareth there. And then the third part, Q&A, white bib short chat, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so um, let's just start from the top. Gareth, who are you and how did you get into cycling? Yes. Hello. Uh, my name is Gareth Winter. Um, who am I? That's a very philosophical question, Cam. Um, <laughs> I am, uh, I'll start with a cyclist. I'm a cyclist. I'm a creative director. I'm a father. I believe in the kind of, I don't want to sound like I'm in a cult, but like that very stoic Adlerian way of life of, um, you, you know, demanding the best from yourself. Um, trying to be the best person you can be uh, and um, be better for other people. Uh, that's me. But cycling really started in my family with my grandparents. My my granddad um, and my nan, they grew up in post-war Britain. They, they, they were alive during the war. <clears throat> my nan was... Uh, um, Oh, what's that word? When you're, that's it, evacuated. My nan was evacuated to Wales during the war, but she was from Battersea. She grew up in, you know, the workhouses in Battersea next to the factories. My granddad grew up down the road um, and they met at a cycling club. And, um, you know, for post-war Britain, I think this is a topic we should get onto a bit more, but like, why yeah. did you take up cycling? Um, why did my grandparents take up cycling? Post-war Britain was pretty depressing and mm. cycling for young people of Britain um, was an escape from their shitty lives, from the poverty yeah. caused by the war, mm. um, by the, the the loss of family members. Um, it, it was a, a distraction and um, I think the cycling community back in the 50s was really powerful and really connected. Nowadays, it's very much social media, which is great because, it, you know, social media, I can talk to a cyclist on the other side of the world that I've never met before and feel really connected to them. But, you know, that real personal connection was very powerful back in the 50s. And um, my grandparents met at a cycling club, fell in love. My granddad, he, um, he was in the RAF uh, doing his national service. He used to cycle 120 miles to his, to his airbase. Uh, on a, on a Sunday evening, 
do his national service, cycle home for the weekend, back to London to see my nan. And, you know, so he, he got through, that was his training. Um, and he'd spend the weekend racing at Hernhill Velodrome, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and nan was far more, on, he was a racer, my granddad, an amazing time trialist. He won the British all-rounder in the time trial world a few oh, wow. years running. Um, wow. Did 24 hours, 12 hours, every discipline of time trial you can imagine and did really well but um my nan she was a social butterfly you know she was um she was the community club member archetype she was uh she connected people uh, and so they were a great duet um that leads to my dad inevitably going to become a cyclist when you grow up with nanny granddad yeah. Um, yeah. and yeah, he took up cycling and racing because it was in the family. Um, he met my mum at Peckham at a roller racing event. You know, these days yeah. it's called like Rollerpalooza. Do you know Rollerpalooza? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the uh, yeah, 70s equivalent of Rollerpalooza in Peckham, which is probably pretty. <laughs> Imagine some sweaty scout hut in Peckham full of sweat oh. and rollers. <laughs> Romantic setting to uh, to find your future love. So, um, mm. yeah, they, my mum, uh, she picked up cycling, I think, to escape quite a, an abusive household. Uh, for her, that was her escape. Yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah, along came me and my brothers. You know, strangely, my brothers don't touch bikes. They're not cyclists at all, complete opposite. Whereas I, I always loved cycling, but um, I think in my childhood, cycling was so normal. You know, we would cycle to school on a tandem where everyone else was kind of being driven to school and we'd turn up in like baggy yellow fluorescent weird stuff and dodgy <laughs> like polystyrene helmets in the 90s. Like the, I'll send you some pictures. It's just the, the most mm. awful cycling lycra you've ever seen in your life. It's disgusting. Um, it's a real niche back in the 90s, you know, oh, yeah. 80s and 90s, road cycling. Uh, and I think we were just the weirdos of the village. Oh, People yeah. looked at us like, what the fuck are you? Um, and, <laughs> uh, so I've been a cyclist all my life. <laughs> <laughs> Cam's got a delay there, yeah. but uh, um, I think c cyclist. I did. I've been a cyclist all my life, but I didn't really know I was a cyclist because I, it was just so ingrained in me. And it wasn't yeah. really until um, Team Sky came about that I realised I was actually a cyclist, and um, that's that inspired a new wave of what cycling meant to me. Um, so my I started my career at Sky News. Uh, as, a, as a graphic designer, a motion designer for Sky News. Uh, and my job was to, you know, be the first for breaking news. So whether that was a US election, a royal wedding, a dictator being assassinated, you know, we were there at the front line of news, getting the story to the world. Um, that was back in 2010. Uh, and then Team Sky was formed in 2011. Sky is such a football world, you know, and I think Sky were looking for people that understood cycling. Of course, yeah. I put my hand up. And uh, being in the right place at the right time really changed my career, really changed my life. Um, mm. Gave me the opportunity to work directly with Team Sky, British Cycling, Team Wiggins, and all of the cycling heroes from from Great Britain. You know, it's um, an incredible kind of start to my the rest of my life. And although I, I kind of always considered myself a sort of cyclist, uh, working with Team Sky and working with my heroes like that turned me into a leg shaving, power meter riding, aerodynamic cycling mammal yeah. you know? uh, and um i think 
you know, there's a few people in my life that have really inspired me to completely transform the way that I see the world and the way that I act and the way that I, um, you know, uh, conduct myself. And number one is Brad Wiggins, you know. Um, I think, for, you know, my grandparents took up cycling post-war Britain. The purpose yeah. isn't too dissimilar to actually, if you look at people who took up cycling during COVID, that was an escape for many people. It was about freedom. It was about getting out. It was about getting away from, you know, the troubles you might be facing. Um, yeah. uh, but then for me, the kind of, why did I take up proper cycling, not just riding my bike, um, was due to the inspiration of, you know, Brad Wiggins winning the, the Tour de France, the Olympic Games, Sir Chris Hoy, Vicky Pendleton, that whole wave of, of, of cyclists from 2012 really kind of made me question, you know, what is it about cycling that you love? And um, it's for me, it's about training, it's about pushing myself. And I was witnessing firsthand these incredible athletes achieving, you know, the, winning the greatest races in the world. And that just inspired me to, to look inward and say, well, what can you do? You're never going to be Brad Wiggins. Mm. Few people can, you know, no one can. Um, but you can be the best version of yourself. So what are you going to do to you know, really get out there. So yeah, my relationship with, with, you know, real kind of road cycling was all about how hard and how fast can you push yourself? How can you continually, you know, see progression? Yeah. How can you uh, set goals, reach them, achieve them? Uh, um, uh, and of course, I think that makes me a little bit robotic and a little bit kind of performance obsessed when so many people are, are, are far more about, you know, the great outdoors, the adventure, role for the soul, um, you know, basically, you know, the spirit of gravel and how everyone's all like, <laughs> it's all about the vibe. If I turned up to gravel, I'd just fucking kill that vibe, you know? I'm like, <laughs> I'm, like, let's, let's, I'm like a vibe killer. I, I'm uh, like, I, I just, you know, I, I like to, I think for me to, to what gives, keeps my kind of mind healthy, is seeing myself get better at something and seeing myself progress. And so for me, it's all about just, just gaining that feeling that you're working towards something and that you're pushing yourself. Uh, and um, yeah, that's, that's, that's who I am as a cyclist. Do you know what, like one of the things you said about you being specific into cycling about pushing yourself, it's actually why I don't run because mm -hmm. I think that when you're cycling, you can either be, you, you're, with your, when you're running, you're either running or you're not. You're either walking or running. There's really, yeah. there's no nothing in between. But mm. when you're cycling, it can be, okay, I'm just going to go out for like a, a relaxed spin. I need to actually just pop up to the shop. I'm not going to sweat because I'm wearing clothes. Or you can yeah. take the trip. You can do it. Or you can ride with your friends. Or you can, I think there's so much range within it. And that's actually why, mm -hmm. I also think that that's why a lot of people are doing cycling now. Don't get me wrong, run clubs are big, but it's not the same thing. You either are running or you're walking. But the difference yeah. between jogging and sprinting, I don't think it's actually that high. Not like cycling, right? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, um, at Team Sky, we had two objectives. Win the greatest bike races in the world and mm. uh, inspire the next generation of cyclists. You know, it's called inspiration to participation. And so... I might sit here and say, oh, for me, it's like, put the power meter on, go out, beast yourself. Um, but, but actually, there's, there's many sides to my um, cycling relationship. You know, one day I might go past with my uh, 
modern road bike, leg shaved, aero kit, power meter, head down. Yeah. And the next day you'll see me on a fixed wheel with a child seat on the back, full civvies, off to get a loaf of bread yeah. with my son. You know, it, it's yeah. uh, the, the, the thing that the, it's to, there's all this talk over the last decade of how do we turn Britain into a cycling nation? Yeah. And the answer isn't everyone get carbon fiber road bikes and shave your legs. Um, it's it's uh, use, it, choose cycling to commute, to meet some friends, to train, to stay healthy, to, to race, you know, it's, you, you've got to embrace every kind of, every avenue of cycling um, and, and promote it, you know. Um, I think during kind of, during the lockdowns, cycling became so many things to so many people mm. um, and, I really thought quite early on, you know, the first kind of year that, wow, Britain can become a true cycling nation like like uh, like the Dutch, like the Belgians, like it is on the continent. But um, I feel like we made kind of one step forward and maybe 10 steps back um, over the last year, maybe. But uh, yeah, maybe I'm being cynical. <laughs> yeah, I think it depends where you live in the world, uh, in, I guess yeah. in, in Britain and yeah, I think with, I guess, I find when I go back to my parents' house in Hampshire, there's like bike paths aren't really existent. It might be like a line for like 100 yards on, on like a road. But then when yeah. you're in London, you kind of see more segregation, um, especially in like, I guess, East London, Walthamstow, where it's like mini, mini Holland up there, uh, which yeah. one, of, one of my cousins used to moan about because it was like oh uh people can't drive their cars and i was trying to make the point of that's that's the whole point of this is they don't want people to drive their cars they want you to like get out ride your bike on these bike paths but then it's sort of if people everyone did that then there's no bike parking as well is what i found is like the infrastructure is like half there um yeah and it kind of can't be half of you know if you try to please everyone you end up pleasing no one yeah mm. i think that's typical of our governments our infrastructure it doesn't really please anyone everyone's pissed off um but yeah cycling in london like i know you guys are all about london cycling cycling in london is unique it's one of the best places to be a cyclist you know if you look yeah. at like strava heat maps you just see a hotbed of london 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 yeah. on any given day you see people on bromptons dutch bikes road bikes tandems mountain bike, like cyclocross it, it it's it's and you kind of why is that and you know lots of it is very practical it's just about commuting. It's just about getting fresh air. Uh, and some of that is like the pressures of living in London and the stress caused by London. People need an outlet. People need to, you know, people like me, you know, want to go out and let some steam off. And, you know, that's why places like Richmond Park, Regent's Park, being in the Surrey Hills, Kent, etc., are so important to Londoners um, because, yeah, we need that, need that ability to go and just, yeah, just yeah. let out the stress of living in London, you know? Yeah, Regent Park is quite, a, I guess, a key thing to that. Even if you're not, what I find quite nice, more more in the summer than winter, is when I cycle in as a commute, do like a lap at least of Regent's and then go into work rather than go like straight there. Because it's kind of yeah. the calming effect of just like, just being in Regent's. There are cars there and like lots of people slamming it, but it's kind of like a nice start to the day. It's a bit calmer, especially, I guess, remembering back when you had to get on the tube five days a week and it was like a scrum and you're like, super mm. close to everyone um so like just the the benefits of just commuting in and even back like yeah commuting every day is so much better than getting on the tube and even like a bus 
it's just a good way to start your day. I'm yeah. such a morning person. I'm in that 5 a.m. club. I'm in the 4 a.m. club. You know, it's like um, if, if, if you go out early, you extend your commute to work or you train on your turbo before work, go to the gym before work, whatever you do, no one can take that away from you. You know, if you choose to train, work out, ride your bike midday or after work, there are so many opportunities for someone to intervene. You know, you could be at work and someone say, new project, deadlines yesterday. Yeah. You've just lost your lunch break. You've lost your gym. You've lost your workout, or you've got to work late because you know you haven't finished these tasks, or this person fucked this up. You're not going home tonight. You're, you know, you've lost your kind of ride time. So, for me, it's that that morning. That morning is that morning ritual is just no one can take that away from you. You go out in London yeah. between four a.m. and eight a.m. You've got a city to yourself, yeah. wherever you are in, in the city, and it's yeah. just you know you feel like. I don't know, you, like you own the place. It's brilliant. You, you just kind of, it's like everyone's asleep apart from you. And, mm. you know, you see other cyclists doing the same thing you are. They get a nod. Of course yeah. they do. Because, you know, you're in that little secret club that no one knows about. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's very tranquil in the morning as well. Quite nice. Yeah, yeah when, you know, in the summer, if it's like 4.30 in the morning, anywhere in London with a sunrise, you're just kind of like, wow, this city is incredible. The, yeah. the sky, the skyline, the the cityscape. You know, if you're, I, I've always, I, I've I've left I've left London now. I'm outside the M25 now, but I lived in uh, West London for 12 years, and you know, I always commuted through Richmond Park, and there's just this view of yeah. London, and you're just like, you've got to pinch yourself. Even though I've lived in London for you know a good chunk of my life, I still feel like I'm a tourist there. It's like you don't belong there because it's such an incredible place. Well, look, with that, maybe we head to a break and Gareth talk about the rest of his life. Welcome back, everyone. So, Gareth, uh, in section one, you mentioned about, I guess, putting your hand up, start helping with the, I guess, Team Sky. Um, Can you tell us about, I guess, how you... You and Team Sky, I guess, evolved together, grew the brand to the, I guess, colossal dynasty that we know it. And then also how, I guess, being around that many, I guess, elite athletes, Mm. I guess, at the time of their pinnacle, what was that like as well? Yeah, I think um, looking back at when I'm 85 years old, fingers crossed I'll make it that far. And I look back on my life, like that decade for me is going to be a real highlight of, um, you know, if I died today, that would be the thing that I guess I'd I'd remember and want to be remembered for is yeah. um, being a part of the biggest movement in British cycling ever. You know, you had the the when you look back at the history of British cycling, you had the trailblazers that um, went over to Europe and paved the way for Team Sky to be successful. People like uh, Sean Yates, um, uh, Tom Simpson, of course, like the OG, um, Chris Boardman, you know, each member, each generation was paving the way for the next generation to come through. And and that, you know, accumulated to Team Sky and British Cycling being what it became. Um, I'm talking past tense. I think British Cycling is still very powerful and Team, yeah. you know, the Ineos Grenadiers are still, of course, at the top of their game. But, you know, that, that decade was where it all happened. And it was, um, for me, you know, I grew up in a cycling family. Uh, I was studying at Swansea University. Yeah. And um, the tour of Britain, K1, 
came to Swansea and it went up this hill called Constitution Hill, which is like a 15, 16% yeah, yeah. vault. Yeah, I know, I know, I know it well. Yeah. Right, yeah, okay. uh, my family are from Swansea, and I, really? I think my, my older brother's cycled up it. I haven't. I've, I saw it the, when we were back earlier in the year. Um, it is, it's yeah, probably more than like twenty five percent, right? It's brutal. It was no, you know, back in the day, it's no yeah. cable car route, so it's just a vertical wall of, <laughs> uh, of um, angled cobbled stones, so the vehicles can climb it, and it's horrible. And I lived at the foot of um, that climb and came out to see Team Sky at the tour of Britain. <laughs> Um, this gives me the perfect excuse to uh, pull out my uh, bag of cycling jerseys. This is like a, I don't know, this is like a, a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. To um, Speaking of rainbows, first jersey, and it is a rainbow jersey. This is Cavs World Championship jersey. Sick. But um, yeah, the, the Team Sky riders were all in the um, Rainforest Rescue Kit this green kit that was kind of a, a short yeah. period kit. And I think Russ Downing was the first rider up um, Constitution Hill during the race. But, you know, that was back in 2010. Uh, and I, I watched them race up Constitution Hill. And then I got a phone call from Sky saying, you've got an interview, come and meet us. And within a couple of weeks, I had a job at Sky. So I went from kind of watching these, you know, watching some cycling heroes fly past my front door and then, I was at Sky and they all came to Sky Sports for a big media event. And yeah. you know, I, I remember <clears throat> Brad rocking up in like some flared jeans and the kind of uh, the sideburns looking very cool and very mod and, you know, very disinterested at being at Sky Sports. And, you know, it's just, uh, just a little kind of, I don't think any of them realized back in 2010, 2011, that they were about to become the greatest cycling team in the world, you know? Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think um, in terms of getting to work with Team Sky, it was um, just, I almost can't, it's almost like such a blur because everything happened so quickly. And, um, you know, you're so kind of starstruck that I think maybe I should actually take some time to step back and go through loads of old photos and reflect on, 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 on kind of what happened and how it happened. But the thing that just rings true for me all the time is, is, is getting to, to see and meet and work with, have conversations with and ride with like your cycling heroes, be that Brad Wiggins, um, Gary Thomas, uh, you know, Peter Kennell, um, Ian Stannard, uh, you know, it, it's, um, and through me, of course, uh, yeah. You know, uh, just they inspired me beyond belief. I don't think I've ever ridden a bike as much as I did when I worked with the team, with British Cycling, Team Sky. Um, I, you know, I was much younger back then, no responsibilities, yeah. um, had all the free time in the world. Uh, I just spent my entire life on a bike uh, and yeah. they just, inspired me you know if, if i went on a photo shoot you know i went to like amazing places like monaco nice to to shoot and film with the guys mallorca training camps whenever i got home i just was so like a coiled spring wanting to ride my bike and just replicate what what i'd just seen and how the pros do it and it was really just challenging myself to okay i've seen what they're capable of 
seen the way that they act, the way they conduct themselves, the way that they eat, the way that they fuel, the way that they rest, the way they recover, you know, all of these things I was learning firsthand. And it wasn't just the riders, it was the the staff, like being being around Sir Dave Brailsford, uh, Fran Miller, um, had a really direct effect on me in terms of, uh, you know, they they introduced to me the kind of the chimp paradox and how to uh, look for, you know, continuous improvement and marginal gains in everything that you do. And, you know, once you kind of, it's like being in the matrix, once you understand, um, you know, practices like the chimp paradox, the way that you're in control of your emotions and how yeah. you're not in control with the uncontrollables. And, and it's how you respond to uncontrollable things that, that kind of gives you the ability to to look for an opportunity and a problem rather than just fixating on a problem. These, these kind of things, um, all, I just absorbed them, you know, like a sponge, took the beginner's mindset and um, through using cycling and winning races as a metaphor, took the application and and the methods of how to be world-class, you start to take them into every aspect of your life. So for me, it was like, how do I become the best cyclist I can become? How do I become the best human that I can become? How can I become the best creative director that I can become? How can I have the best relationships with people? You know, it, it's um, it's it's a, it's a practice that you can take into every aspect of your life. And so it wasn't just the the cyclists that inspired me. It was the staff too, you know, the yeah. chefs, the nutritionists, the performance coaches, uh, the management, so Dave Brelsford, Fran Miller, et cetera. They transformed my life, uh, you know came from very humble backgrounds. You know, my dad's a building inspector. My mum was a cleaner. I never imagined that, you know, I could yeah. change the way that I look at life. Um, and, you know, you kind of, I wish that I knew what I knew now, much younger in life. You kind of think, ah, oh, you know, why doesn't anyone teach this stuff? Why don't, why don't schools teach you how to, how to receive information? Why don't schools teach you how to, um, how to respond to, to problems? Why do they just teach you, you know, A plus B equals C. Why do you know? Yeah. This, this, it's a. Uh, yeah, I'm going off on a bit of a, a ramble now. But, um, yeah, so you kind of lived, lived and breathed marginal yeah. gains. It was. I was Mr. Marginal Gains, and actually, you know, I got to a point in my life where I kind of thought, you've programmed yourself to remove emotion from pretty much every aspect of your life. So you can approach it with logic and so that you can approach it with an opportunistic mind, blah, blah, blah. I got to a point where I was like, I don't even think I'm fucking human anymore. Like, they, I, I don't think I cried for like a decade. It was like a brick wall of a man. Um, but since having a son, young Zep, yeah. um, he's completely destroyed that. Like that wall is just a rubble of dust now. I'm an emotional wreck. Um, the, the the smallest things makes me cry with you know happiness and joy because of the emotions of being a father and uh, it's probably done me a lot of good. Can I ask a question about? Can I ask a question about when Team Sky first arrived? So, you know, NJ and I remember mm-hmm. Team Sky and you know building on the Olympic legacy and things like that. But I I've only heard about it secondhand, and you're probably to tell us firsthand when they arrived with a proper coach and they had chef support and they brought their own mattresses and pillows and you know they they did it what's now regular then was completely off the books what was that like going to i don't know um parry roubaix where everyone was still on 20 mil tubulars and would just eat steak for breakfast the morning of what was it like when sky arrived and it was 
completely different? How and how did it kind of impact the guys? Yeah, I think uh, the only person I really spoke to about this kind of stuff is Brad. Um, and, you know, Brad was like, you know, I was the first person to wear a skin suit to to a road race and got a lot of stick for it. But they just they didn't care because you know if you care about others other people's opinions, then you're gonna you're gonna change the way that you act. And you know so. They really just didn't care what other people thought of them uh, because they knew that they were trailblazers. They they were they were transforming and changing the sport. So anyone else's opinion of them was just irrelevant, you know. And I think Dave Brailsford helped them, coach them to understand that. Just don't look at competition. Look at yourself. Look internally. You know what can I do? How do I improve myself? If you look at your competition, you're just you're looking in the wrong direction. Um, so yeah, I think they got a lot of stick. Um, but I don't think they cared because the, the success and the results spoke for themselves, you know? Um, and everyone and, does it in the Peloton now. Yeah. Uh, and you know, some, you know, team sky did change cycling mm. many ways for better in it, the better ways outweigh the negatives. But when I look back and watch old racing documentaries, like a couple of weeks ago, I watched the, uh, Greg Lamont documentary. Oh, yeah. and, Cycling was so much more exciting. Watching that old footage, it feels like so much more emotional. It feels raw. There's like stories, there's characters, there's heroes, there's villains. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's like a circus. Uh, and now it's, um, it's a sport. Yeah. 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 When you, I guess, were at Sky, did you ever cycle with any of the, the riders at all? Yeah, so I've I've spent a lot of saddle time with Brad, uh, and, and that has um, you know most most people when they find out that I've met Brad, worked with Brad, ridden with Brad, friends with Brad, like what's it like to ride with Brad? And you know, uh, if I didn't have my mindset of um, how do you look for opportunities, how do you see the best in things, you know, I could very easily get very um, very downbeat about my cycling abilities because <laughs> I've ridden with Brad like he hadn't ridden a bike in like a year he's like oh I've maybe been on my watt bike a few times but I've mostly been you know working out running jogging training boxing and then he gets on a bike and then he just looks like he is a part of that machine and yeah. like his pedal rotation his position his cadence the way he handles a bike the way he corners um I'm just sitting there thinking fucking hell I train like 15 hours yeah. a week uh, and I have done for like 15 years mm. consistently consistently for 15 years um much longer just riding uh mm. and i look maybe one percent as good as you uh, and you've just fucked off for a year and jumped back on and but to me that just that what that demonstrates is the commitment that brad put into cycling from a very young age a very early yeah. age to be able to for a bike to be part of his body to be second nature it's just a small window into the dedication that he applied you know you read stories about brad and how if he was going to a race he'd ride to the race do the race ride home from the race to get extra miles in to to hone his craft you know he was a perfectionist and an absolute kind of ruthless with his kind of continuous relentless self-learning uh he was dedicated to being the best he could be and and you know he jumps on a bike, looks incredible, and I could easily think to myself, "Fucking hell, Gareth, you're useless. You're shit. You put in this much time, effort, dedication, passion, and you could never achieve that." But 
you look at the positives of that, I do see it as inspiration. It's like, fucking hell, you know, what can I do differently? Um, what can I do to even remotely get close to the way that you uh, complete a pedal rotation or whatever it is, you know? I once heard a story that when he, him and Kath were still together, she dropped him off at the airport to when the year he won the tour and she opened the boot and he just walked into the airport and he's like, I don't want to even do the minimal strain of getting my suitcase out the back of the car. I just need yeah. to be floating around. I don't want to check in. I don't want to do anything. I want to sit in my seat, arrive. He says, I don't want anything. I just want to be focused. And that was like the week before the tour started. He just he was just mm. completely in the zone. I think he said as well, maybe in the same interview, that he didn't want his kids coming to the tour because he's like, daddy's got to be so in the zone. If I see you on the side mm. of the road or if I see you at a stop, I will be out of the zone. I need to forget you exist and just be this Tour de France winner and everything else immaterial. Don't care. Yeah, and and I think in in when he looks back, he talks about how he was an asshole, but and that's yeah. who he had to become to be the best in the world. And you know, uh, I've seen that firsthand, especially at the Velodrome. We spent a lot of time with British Cycling Team Sky in the Velodrome in Manchester, um, especially around Brad's hour record um, training and Brad's. I don't want to say attempt because he took it in Lee, in Lee Valley, um, yeah. and you could see Kath carrying the track bikes. You know. Um, uh, and, and the family was committed to his success. But, mm. you know, in terms of not talking to his kids or looking at his kids during a, a big race like the Olympics, he walked past them at the Olympics while they were in a cafe, you know. Um, in terms of the – I've seen – let's take Ben. So Ben, Brad's son, Ben, is a yep. cyclist now, very yeah, capable yeah, yeah. cyclist, and his Incredible. junior career has surpassed Brad's junior career if you looked at them side by side, age by age. Um but in terms of being a father, I know how important that is to Brad. And the, what I've seen of Ben um, proves that although Brad's methods might sound extreme, that his, you know, take Ben as an example, he's become a very wholesome person. In 2016, Brad's final tour of Britain, um, the final stage in London, the team Wiggins got absolutely swamped by fans. You know, like, hang on, I get the old... Team Wiggins jersey out here, you know. Oh, I love this Team one. Wiggins, this is one of the most iconic wow. jerseys for me in full start. Was, like, this is my favorite jersey. That was one of the best setups. It was like Giro helmets, Pinarellos. They were riding yeah. zips. They had the Rafa kit, Oakley sunglasses, like like a peak. That's still for me, like peak setup. Everything locked in. Yeah, oh, pure yeah. class, pure class. Like Owen Dahl, Brad Wiggins, like it was just... Anyway, the final stage, they were just swamped. You know, the Team Sky van was there and it was empty. All the fans were around the Team Wiggins car. Yeah. And I can remember seeing, I, I was in I was in the, the kind of Team Wiggins area um, mm. taking some shots and stuff. And uh, there was this young girl um, trying to get an autograph from Brad. Uh, and she had, I think she had a little cap and she was trying to get it signed by Brad. But she was getting completely engulfed by, you know, big burly Cycling fan men uh, who were they were kind of crushing her against the bollards trying to get my autograph, and this girl was completely lost. And you know, I spotted her, and so did Ben. You know, Brad's son Ben spotted her. Yeah, he walked up to her and took the cap off, went up to his dad, and said, 
you know, can you sign this for her? And Brad signed it and then went and gave it to her and took a selfie with her. And it was like for Ben to spot that girl and do what he did to, to, cause yeah, it just tells me what a good person he is inside, you know? Um, so yeah, going back to the point of kind of Brad's ruthlessness, I think that's what we see in the public eye at race day. What don't we see on training days on yeah. Sundays, you know, like it's what you don't see that really counts. What you do see is all kind of without context. I think um, another, in terms of riding with pro cyclists, like up here, I've got a photo. This is one of Michael Bland's uh, mountains photos. Yeah. The cold grouse, that's, that's kind of where Team Sky used to train um, from the heart of Monaco. For me, like that climb is in, in 2019 when Team Sky came to a close and became Team Ineos, you know, I spent the last week with them before the exchange and yeah. I got to ride up here with the riders. And for me, that's a memory that will always, you know, that's always sits close to me of, you know, the last filming days with uh, Garrett Thomas, Chris Froome, uh, you know, going to the, um, going to their apartment in Monaco, stealing one of their Pinarellos and going out for a ride um, was just like, for me, it's like complete closure on that decade of Team Sky um, before, you know, Ineos took over. And that's why this hangs here, like in my office. Yeah. Reminder of, um, you know, the incredible decade we had. What, um, what's the pro set? How, to, hmm. sorry, how, how does the pro setup feel? I just want to ask this question. This is like pure through the keyhole stuff. And I think NJ wants to know this maybe as well. Yeah. When you're turning up at a hotel <laughs> and there's someone going, can I have your suitcase? And they go breakfast at nine, little bit of yoga. And then there's a car supporting you. You take stuff out of your pocket, you give it to the car. How does it feel going from, oh, I was at university, then I worked at Sky, and now I'm training with the world's greatest cycling team, maybe that it's ever seen. And I'm on a training camp where I'm being treated like one of the greatest athletes in the world. How does, how does it feel for you personally? Does it kind of make your head explode? Yeah, it's just, um, you just sit in awe of the resource that a professional rider has, you know, um, famous phrases, comparison is the thief of joy. And I think many keen cyclists, um, want to compare their numbers to pro cyclists. I'm totally guilty of that myself. Uh, I've definitely spent periods of my life where I've been trying to get Chris Froome's BMI, his cadence, his power yeah. output, and failing miserably, and actually uh, to the detriment of my health as an athlete, um, I've taken it to extremes to try and achieve what they are capable of. And, and um, the reason why you know someone with a full-time job, a family, etc., can't achieve those numbers, you just don't have that infrastructure. You don't have that um, attention to detail. You know, with every bike ride you went on had a team of mechanics. Uh, performance staff, uh, you know, all of your needs taken care of in the back of a vehicle. When you get back, massage, etc. You know, um, that's how you become the best in the world. It's it's. Uh, everyone says it's a full time job. It's more than a full time job. Being an athlete, it's uh, yeah. it's a lifestyle. It, you you can't turn it off. You, you can't have bad days. You can't. You know. Um, yeah. There's. 
you have to be completely oh i don't want to sound too negative but it is like institutionalized you have to be institutionalized by by the by the system to be the best in the world and i think if you've got a good network and a good system in place like team sky and current cycling teams that's great in the past the institutionalization could have been more like bullying could have been more like banned substances etc etc but yeah um i think often i think to myself Gareth, you grew up in a cycling family. Why didn't you try to become a pro cyclist yourself? Um, and of course, when I was young, I never thought that was even an option. We did yeah. countryside, and there were no cycling clubs where we kind of moved to. We moved away from my parents' cycling teams, etc., and clubs, and moved into the sticks. And so, cycling when I was young became a real recreation thing, not a club community type thing but um i often ask myself you know do you, do you think you have what it takes to be a pro cyclist and i think the answer is yes i'm very uh driven uh militant love routine love positive habits but um you know at the same time uh, i'm very thankful to be able to just uh have cycling as something that i love and not something that i could grow to resent i think there's yeah. a Definitely a trap with ex-pro cyclists that many, many um, ex-pros who retire um, fall out of love with cycling. Uh, and yeah. it's probably due to the their relationship and the behaviours of yeah. being pro cyclists that have stopped them from remembering why they took up cycling in the first place. And, you know, in terms of, yes, I worked with Team Sky for close to a decade and... Um, I've also, during that period, not worked with Team Sky. And I've worked at Sky in completely unrelated subjects like uh, corporate communications, football, rugby, um, Sky News, etc. And I think, you know, there's definitely some... um, There's been times when my profession has not involved cycling and that has had a very positive... um, uh, that has improved my relationship with cycling because it's not my day job because it's my thing that I can do by myself in the morning with my friends on the weekends. And it's really nice to do a day job that you're passionate about and you commit yourself, you apply yourself and then you go home and forget about it until the next day. Whereas when you're working in your passion, your profession and your profession are connected, you can drive yourself a bit mad, I think. Um, So yeah, there are probably lots of people listening to this podcast thinking, oh, I wish I worked in the cycling industry. It's amazing. But, you know, think about the benefits of not working in the cycling industry. You will yeah. love sport even more. Uh, I've learned that from experience. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Yeah, I guess me and Cam don't work in the cycling industry. So we have that kind of nice balance of we can just switch it off. Whereas I guess if you're always in it, you can never switch it off. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess moving on from Team Sky, uh, what 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 are you doing these days, Gareth? Mostly these days, I ride indoors. Um, yeah, because life is very busy. When you have kids, you have less time, so it's about yeah. how do you use your time that you do have effectively. Uh, and for me, in the weekday, that means get on the turbo for an hour and a half. You're doing three hours worth of training on the road kind of um it's all about ramping up the intensity and um 
you know, I know you guys wanted to talk about my Sacalobra um, escapades yes. last year. Um, should we talk about that? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I think, you know, I I'm, last year I moved out of London, moved out of the M25, you know, and very quickly you guys know how amazing the kind of London cycling scene is. Yeah. When I lived in um, I lived in Richmond, uh, I could jump on many WhatsApp groups and find a group of people to train with. Uh, and for me, I have two speeds, no gas and full gas. So um, <laughs> we go out on a coffee ride with some friends and chat. There's a WhatsApp group for that. If I want to go out with a chain gang and get my head kicked in, um, you know, that, that old quote of like, you don't rest when you're tired, you rest when the gorilla's tired. Like, <laughs> that's... Uh, I had a chain gang for that on a Saturday morning, you know. Um, when when you when you leave that kind of hub of cycling communities uh, and kind of little tribes that you can flutter between, and uh, uh, which is brilliant, uh, it's kind of you and your bike. And so, for me, it was like, how do I stay focused and don't let go of being who you are? Because fundamentally part of me is being someone that challenges themselves pushes themselves when i became a father so many people came up to me a few in particular that really pissed me off and, and they were like gareth you're gonna you're gonna get fat you're gonna get unfit you're gonna get you're gonna have no sleep you know telling me all of these things that they wanted me to become yeah um, and and i just kind of thought no no i'm not just because i've become a father i'm not gonna let go of who i am and also, I firmly believe that, you know, your health is your wealth. And that if you uh, can take the time, just a small, an hour, an hour and a half a day to, uh, to self-prioritize, you will be better for other people. So if you didn't have time where you can self-prioritize on any given day or week, you know, you're going to burn out. And when you're burnt out, how are you going to be present? and be your best self for other people. In my world, that's my son and my yeah. partner. How am I going to be the best version of me for them? Um, if I wasn't training, if I wasn't cycling, if I wasn't working out, um, I would probably become an asshole. Uh, complete. Uh, it wouldn't be me, you know. I'd turn into someone else. Um, so I kind of took that challenge of, you know, Gareth, you're, you're a dad now join the club, you can give up on all of that cycling stuff and just, just you know, watch TV and yeah. whatever, you know, I'm just generalizing here, but it's no. kind of like, no, I'm going to prove to you that, you know, you, just because you become a parent, it doesn't mean you have to let go of who you are. And also, you know, the power of um, self-prioritization means that you are a better person for the people who need you. And I believe this wholeheartedly, and I think I can prove it too. Um, I just wanted to set myself a goal that is obtainable for me and kept my mind sharp. And every time, every time you clip into a turbo, you'll go into war with yourself. Yes. You've got this voice that in the back true. of your head saying, <laughs> so you, you know, you've got this voice in the back of your head saying, you didn't sleep, you're tired, this is gonna hurt, blah, blah, yeah. blah. If you have the courage to confront that voice every day and say, no, I'm gonna fucking show you, let's get to work. I'm gonna, in, in spite of you, gonna, put the number out that I need to put out today, whatever, you know, um, you know, when you've got a training goal, it's very easy 
to silence those voices because you've got a purpose, you know. Uh, and so an easy purpose for me was let's go and do some climbing, you know. Let's. I, I, so I set myself the goal of Sacalobra sub 30. It's a goal that I can achieve. It's a goal that I've nearly achieved. And with that time that I have, it's kind of a half hour effort is brilliant if you're a turbo warrior like me, yeah. you have limited time to train for. And so um, Mallorca, like let's start with Mallorca. Mallorca is for me, one of my favorite places to ride because I've been to the Mallorca Training Council Teams guy. Yeah. Because I've got those memories. I've also got amazing memories of, of, with my dad cycling there. Um, my dad, he, he had leukemia. Mm-hmm. The doctor told my dad, <clears throat> you will struggle to walk unaided, let alone ride your bike again because of leukemia. <clears throat> so he, he took that as a challenge really. And, you know, started riding to the local cafe and back. And before you know it, he went a bit yeah. further, a bit further and a bit further. And eventually he got to the point where we went to Mallorca, he climbed up Sacalobra. And for, for me, that was like the celebration that you've got through leukemia. That That's amazing. Real clear. And so the island has loads of really fond memories for me. And, I, you know, you can say what you want about Mallorca. It's a bit oversaturated. It is a mammal mecca. It's become like, you know, it's the Richmond Park of Mallorca. Um, uh, but, you know, I love going there still. I think it's a great place, especially if you have a family, because you can do the beach and you can do the cycling. You don't need to go far to to, to, to see some amazing things. You know, a two-hour ride in Mallorca, it's about all I do when I'm with my family, you know, uh, and yeah. uh, that's a great ride. Um, so I was like, I, I've been to Mallorca pretty much every year for uh, 10 years, you know. It's, um, I've come so close to doing under 30 minutes. Like, I think my best time before going last year was 30 minutes and 19 seconds. Ooh. And it was like, Gareth, you can convert that, you know. Mm. When you did that, you didn't have this, you didn't have that, you didn't have this, you didn't have a wax chain, blah, blah, blah. Put all those things together, bang, you've nailed it. So um, my analytic marginal gains mind goes on Velo Viewer, best bike split, figures out, can I do Sacalobra sub 30? Everything says, yes, Gareth, it's going to be a piece of piss. You've done the training. Here's your FTP. Here's your kit. Here's your, you know, here's all your marginal gains. Here's your aerodynamics. Just go and do it. Uh, And so... Last year, me, Becky, and Zepp, we went on a little family cycling holiday, um, and I probably ruined their holiday for them. <laughs> okay. My obsession to this commitment to doing Sacalobra in sub-30. Um, but uh, no, I think we all had a great time. The the uh, the, the reason I wanted to Sacalobra sub-30 is just because that's a benchmark, you know, it's like... It's always, you know, like a 10-mile time trial has a benchmark. If you can do a 10-mile TT in under 20 minutes, you're good. If you can do it in under 18 minutes, fucking awesome. Um, mm. Sacalobra in sub-30 is considered a really high benchmark. So just to prove to myself, you know, that I've still got it, you know, in my middle age, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I just wanted to go and get it done. And the first effort, I went up there. Um, I was looking at my power meter. Everything was going to plan. Uh, and I thought it was just inevitable that I just hold this power, get to the top, and job done. Go in and put your feet up on the beach. But uh, halfway up, my um, my seat post slipped. It went down, you know, and it went down and down and down and down. And oh I like, no! I, I can't, I can't do this. <laughs> so I sat up and just hobbled, hobbled to the top, and was like, oh, "That's fine," you know. Um, 
you know, the thing is you put your bike in a bike box, you fly to the, you get your torque wrench out and then you do it to the recommended torque spec. The recommended torque spec on seat posts and stems is just what manufacturer can recommend that you marginally over tighten your component and crack some carbon. They don't want to take that risk. So I always think they give you a number under uh, and I followed the rules and uh, my seat post slipped even with carbon gripper paste, you know? Yeah. So I got back home, put it back to the right spot, tightened up without a torque wrench, blind, you know, just give it the old, yeah. uh, do it until kind of like, it sends a shiver down your spine, and then, it's <laughs> tight, then it's tight enough. Um, uh, I went back the next day thinking, okay, same thing, you, you know, you've got your aero socks, skin suit, aerodynamic lid, lightweight sunnies, uh, waxed chain, uh, a lightweight bike, taking the bottle cages off. This bike's as light as I want it to be. Just go and turn the numbers out. And I think I did like, I can't remember now, it's just over three minutes. It was like three minutes and I don't know, five seconds or something. I can't remember. And I got to the top and thought, that's fine. You can be really content with that number. That's a really good number. That's a, that's a good benchmark, 30 minutes and five seconds or whatever. But then I started cycling home and just thought, no, no, Gareth, that's not who you are. <laughs> You're not someone who, who puts out a, a bold statement and then accepts it. <laughs> you know, you've got to prove it to yourself. Uh, and also, I want to be, this is a bit more philosophical, but to my son, at the time, he was like just over a year. Mm -hmm. He's got no memory of this time in his life. Uh, he's never going to remember or care that his dad did Sakalobra in under 30 minutes. It's just not relevant. <laughs> but but what I wanted to do is set uh, a standard for myself that I hold myself accountable to so that I can be a yeah. positive role model for him. I want to show him that if you work hard at something, which I did, I trained for it, prepared for it, dialed everything in. Uh, if you work hard for something uh, and you're prepared and you have the courage to go out and give it your best, then you can achieve anything in your life. I want him to know from a young age that he can live his life fearless because, you know, failure is um, fear. The fear of failure is something that blocks so many people from achieving their true potential. So I want him to live his life without fear. And the only way I can do that is if I show him, you know. So I kind of thought, right, you're going back the next day, Gareth, uh, and you're gonna you're gonna do it in sub thirty. And I can just remember um, the the thing is when you go out. Uh, hill climb is a great metaphor for life, for personal struggles. You know, I, I kind of, if you tell yourself that you're going to meet a target, say it's a climb, as you go up that mountain, you will experience every emotion, every positive thought process, every negative thought process. As you go up that mountain, you will fear, you, you will feel fear, you will feel hate, you will feel uh, elation, you will fear a You'll feel the surge of adrenaline when you're feeling positive. You'll feel the almost opposite when you you feel like you're you can't do this. And, and these voices in your head, you know, you just learn how to control them. Um, and uh, I can remember just getting close to the top. I could see that by the splits on my on my on my um, computer that I'd I'd made like a twenty second gap on my previous effort. But the closer I got to the top, the the, the shorter yeah. that kept coming. And it got to a point where I was like, the maths doesn't look good here. 
you mm. could very easily do a slower time than you did yesterday. Uh, and thoughts like that, you know, that that's almost enough to make you just stop pedaling and just, yeah. just, just, just throw it in and just say, fucking hell, you can't do it. I'm done. Quit. I'm over. But you know, if you, if you can kind of like find this, if you can overcome those feelings and, and fight back at them, you can almost unlock something within you that you never knew you had. Um, you just got to look to your, look to your purpose. And you, you know, all I had to do was just picture my son's face. And that gave me the strength to just say, the numbers are going down. Unless you fucking give it some gas now, Gareth, you're not going to make it. So fucking go. You've got nothing to lose. And, you know, I think that's the brilliant thing about cycling is that um, it just teaches you so much about yourself. Yeah. And, and you learn so much about who you are from riding a bike. Because when the going gets tough, what do you do? Do you give up? Do you quit? Or do you do you press on, you know? And at the start of your cycling life, you might you might quit. And that's fine. But, you know, next time you might go a bit further and, and, and throughout the duration of your journey, you, you'll, you'll slowly start to unlock this, this like inner strength. Um, and that's why I love cycling. It's like, it's given me this inner strength that I never could have achieved without it. It's one of the hardest sports in the world. You know, like, I think that's why I love it so much. You know, I've, I've done lots of sports in my life and nothing comes close to the kind of the ability to make yourself hurt and suffer like cycling does sound quite masochistic maybe talking about hurt and suffering but yeah. actually it's at the end of that suffering that that you experience the positive stuff you know the, the kind of sense of achievement and um yeah you just unlock a kind of yeah this kind of david goggins can't hurt me attitude yeah. that, that um i think protects you from the shit that life throws at you and life throws everyone shit every day it's, it's how you respond to that shit that kind of creates who you are uh, and cycling is for me, the ultimate tool to, to, to teach you that. That was really inspiring. What was, what was your final time? Uh, it was like 2953, seven seconds to spare or something stupid like that. And the, the, the worst thing is, is like, I achieved my goal. I got back and figured out, you know, five different things that I could have done differently to unlock more time. So now I'm already, I'm already like planning my next trip to Mallorca to go to like the sub 29, you know, it's like, Oh, for fuck's sake, yeah, yeah. I can't switch it off. <laughs> Never end. I just can't switch it off. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to going back soon and just, uh, turning that, just bringing those numbers down a bit, you know? So guys, you've obviously told us that you come from a cycling family. You've been cycling for a long time. You've mm -hmm. seen what cycling looks like at the kind of the very pinnacle of it being a incredibly elite you know, um, way of life and how it's affected yourself. But we've seen lots of change even within the past five years of bikes. You know, everyone's now gone disc. Group sets are mostly all electric and bikes now cost the same as, you know, what a small hatchback does secondhand, let's be honest. So, would you give us maybe your perspective yeah. on, you know, where you see the industry changing and, and maybe what's happening in the future for the bike industry as, as someone who's worked in it as well? Yeah. Um, it's a, I always think to know where you're going, you've got to understand what kind of where you've come from. Um, I think people taking up cycling today or who have taken up cycling in the last few years, it's not really relevant to them so much because you kind of just, 
take things forward as they are today. But having lived through many eras, decades of cycling, you know, my first road bike was really my dad's hand-me-down and it had down tube shifters, 36 spokes. Um, yeah, the, I think it had a, a, an 1121 six-speed block on the back, now called a cassette, used to be called a block. Um, and, you know, cadence wasn't invented then. <laughs> it was just uh, get up that climb like it's a leg press. Not a not a rotary action, um, and even you know in 2010 2011 I was in uh, Twickenham Cycling Club, really old cycling club. It's brilliant. Um, unfortunately, these days it's much smaller and it's kind of taken a bit of an impact of the, the way the world's gone. But when, when I was in Twickenham Cycling Club, it, the president was a guy called Graham Na Graham McNamee, and Graham McNamee was a talent scout for British Cycling. He found people like Joanna Rousel and, and took yeah. them to the world stage, you know. Um, and he was the president. He uh, raced the milk race, and he really put everyone under his wing and, and gave them all of his time and commitment to helping them become the cyclists that they wanted to become, whether that was a social rider who rides for coffee, whether that yeah. was a racer, junior team, women's team. He, he really cared about every aspect of cycling. And um, even back in 2010, 2011, I was riding downtube shifters on a steel frame bike, 36 spokes. And um, because of the kind of the, the, the cycling boom of 2012, new riders were coming into Twickenham Cycling Club with Pinarellos, with uh, Shimano Jura Ace group sets. Uh, and uh, I would say that I was a better cyclist uh, that sounds really elitist. I was a faster cyclist, a more trained cyclist, and a more experienced cyclist, and they were starting to kick my ass um, because they were using, uh, you know, the latest technology yeah. that I never felt I really needed before because I was keeping up with everyone on some old, you know, Campagnolo crap uh, from the 1980s. But I, I kind of um, I started modernising my equipment to keep. Yeah to keep on top of my game. And, you know, I think I've got this real kind of, I'm such a contradiction. Like um, I want to have, I, I demand the best from my the best from myself. You know, uh, I'm all about human performance first. So uh, when it comes to marginal gains, if you're not getting your maximal gains right, then marginal gains are just irrelevant. So if you're doing the right things, you, you know, you've got your training uh, and competing, nutrition and hydration, rest and recovery. If you're getting those three maximal pillars right consistently, you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, but why would you invest all of that time and effort into being consistently good in those three areas if you're going to neglect an, another area of your of your life, like 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 your bike, like your wheels, like your kit, etc. So I demand the best from myself, and in return, I demand the best from my equipment. Because you know, wh why why would you hold yourself back from being the best you can be? And then, you know, why would you do that? So as as cycling technology has progressed over the last few decades, there have been some real significant um, game changers. And there have been a lot of marketing waffle, you know, and the motivations behind marketing waffle are to sell to uh, customers who already have this component, this thing, but they haven't bought from you in a while. You yeah. need to give them the impression that they have to upgrade. Otherwise, 
they're holding themselves back, you know, uh, and that's mostly not true. I think there's a few really significant things in the cycling industry that have transformed the game. And firstly, go back to like clipless pedals. Clipless pedals, Greg LeMond famously kind of uh, was the trailblazer of clipless pedals. Everyone today is using SPDs, uh, Speedplay, et cetera, et cetera, because you can complete a full pedal stroke. Before with toe straps, you know, strapping your foot into a cage, yeah. you, you lost part of your rotation to uh, gravity, you know? Um, and so the clipless pedal was something that just changed the game. It enabled people to pedal more efficiently, produce more power for the same cadence brilliant like game changer when we go fast forward to modern day technology um there's so many things out there that i don't feel the need to adopt um so if you look at my bike uh for me it's my dream bike it's perfection but there are things that i'm not doing that everyone else in the world is doing uh for example uh i might be known as the kind of save the rim brake guy um, <laughs> but, you know I will put it out there first. I have got absolutely nothing against disc brakes. They are superior to rim brakes in just about every aspect of cycling, apart <laughs> from weight. They weigh a little bit more than, yeah. than, than calipers, rim brakes. Um, why doesn't why don't I have them? Because I don't feel like they give me any advantage whatsoever. If I was to, in five years' time, rim brakes would be extinct, and I will adopt disc brakes. But at this moment in time, I don't feel the need to buy something that isn't going to drastically radically changed my cycling experience um and you know there's kind of if you look at my bike there's kind of lots of classicness to it and for me that's about telling you know it's like if you like music you'll go around with a t-shirt on with like led zeppelin on the front because you want to yeah. tell the world that you listen to led zeppelin yep um or you know you wear you dress a certain way to tell the world who you are and it's the same with a bike. A bike is a reflection of who you are and, and where you've been. So with my bike, I want to maintain a slightly classic aesthetic to tell people that I've been doing this a while. And it's, it's also, for me, it's like a nod to the past. It's like a, a memory of how cycling used to be and the pictures that I grew up looking at with my granddad and all that kind of stuff. You know, like if every time I look at my bike and I see like classic leather bar tape wrapped around the bars, yeah. it reminds me of my granddad's bike. When I was a kid looking at his bikes hanging in his garage, I used to stare at those things like Campanello chain rings, just spinning them around and around mm. in circles. They're like, it's just bike porn, you know? Um, <laughs> it's like classic touches like that are just a part of me and my memories are sewn into them. The way that I wrap my bar tape is unique to uh, an old friend of mine who passed away who taught me how to wrap bar tape. And so it's, you know, there's a lot of me woven into it, yeah. but at the same time, I don't want my bike to be slow. Leather bar tape weighs a lot, you know, like you're glowing up a mountain and you're like, fucking hell, my bar tape weighs more than most people's saddles. Um, but um, in terms of, yeah, going back to your question, Cam, of where's the cycling industry going? I think um, for me, uh, there are, you know, well, how do I start this? I don't, I don't want to kind of like villainize anything, but I think... The cycling industry right now is under a lot of pressure. I, I think the demand for the demand and the surplus that was created during the kind of pandemic to now seeing a massive reduction of, of need for, for for sales. The bike industry is under a lot of pressure. You know, pretty much every bike brand out there, cycling brand, sport brand is, 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 is uh, wiggles closed down. Everyone's reporting on lack of sales. Uh, Giant has seen 
you know, massive decrease. Shimano, every, everyone's kind of on a race to the bottom. Mm. So that means, well, how do we sell to people? And I think we're innovating for the sake of innovating versus actually changing the game. Uh, and so recent things that I think have changed the game are chain waxing. Like chain waxing, some people might see that as like, oh my God, you need a whole laboratory in your kitchen to wax a chain, uh, blah, blah, blah. Get five watts of extra speed, you know, like what's the fucking point? But you know, actually, like beyond the, the five watt performance improvement, a wax chain, so I use Silka chain treatments and yeah. Silka have shown that uh, if you use their hot melt wax and their drip wax on top, it can increase the life of your drivetrain 10 times. How much money are you saving if exactly. a chain lasts you 10 times longer? How much is it, like, if you look at my bike, I use Campagnolo. Uh, I use Campagnolo 11 speed, which for me is the best group set in the world. Like, it, it, it's that balance between, it's got aesthetic, it looks mm -hmm. great, and it really performs. Um, say what you will about Campagnolo's current offerings and place in the market. <laughs> But um, basically, you know, this group set that I love is extinct. If you if you go on eBay to find a Campagnolo Super Record 11-speed cassette, you're going to lose 500 quid. Yeah. So if I can make my cassette last me 10 times longer, that's basically 10 years, you know? Like, mm. wow, that's incredible. And that's due to chain waxing. So you keep your hands clean. You know, if you do drop a chain, I rarely drop a chain ever. But if you drop a chain, you're not going to get muddy hands, you yeah. know, oily hands. It's going to make your drivetrain last 10 times longer and it gives you a performance you know benefit of improved wattage or transmission energy transmission through, through your chain so for me modern day technology chain waxing is brilliant then you move into kind of the territories of um you know cockpits that are non-standard people like trek making very odd shaped bikes and yeah incompatible seat posts etc etc i'm just kind of like this is all noise um we don't need these things what we do need are really good quality bikes that are durable and they're going to last the user like at least five years you know uh, um we need quality bearings that are going to roll forever uh, uh things that are strong durable finding the balance between lightweight and um and performance uh like what do people need serve those things versus what people don't need people don't need mechanical headaches and every time something goes wrong with their bike they have to take it to a specialist mechanic who's got a specialist tool to, to fix a integrated headset that yeah. has integrated things and this 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 you know like i'm a firm believer of simple is better in every aspect of your life if you can take something very complex simplify it and use it every day and it lasts and it's durable mm. then that's a sustainable way of life that's a stress-free way of life like for me it's cycling is getting very complicated uh, and we just we just don't need that we just need to be able to enjoy every ride all of that in mind time that in mind maybe we head to a break Uh, welcome back, everyone. Uh, we're on to our last section, the the Q and A. Um, so, Gareth, what what 
what is more pro? What do you prefer, uh, Regent's Park or Richmond Park? Oh, this is easy for me. I hate Regent's Park. <laughs> I hate Regent's Park. It's like uh, it's a necessary evil <laughs> for the people of North London, and especially if you're working in Central London, <clears throat> it's a necessary evil. On Wednesdays, I, when I worked at Sky, <clears throat> that was out in Brentford, like proper yeah. West London, almost not even in London, you know. Mm. I would cycle to Central London at 4 a.m., go and train with the RCC, would do like morning hills yeah. uh, all around Hampstead Heath, uh, Highgate, Classic. Classic. Uh, and it was amazing. Like you have North London to yourself. You've got all of these amazing hills, Swains Lane, uh, Muswell Hill, etc., etc. Great cycling, empty roads, uh, hill reps. And then for me, Regent's Park is the thing that you cycle through to get to the cafe, not not the place where you actually cycle. I've done a few laps of Regent's Park. I've probably done less than 10 laps of Regent's Park in my life. I hate it. It's like so, I hate, I just hate Regent's Park. I don't like cycling there. I'd rather be on a turbo trainer. Honestly, I just, I just, I really would. I, I find it. There's so like, all I can explain is being surrounded by cyclists yet feeling completely alone. Like, that's, that's my experience <laughs> in Park. London, though. That's <laughs> my experience of Regent's Park. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Richmond Park, I've got a love-hate thing with Richmond Park. You know, when when you've lived next, like Richmond Park has yeah. been my back garden for like over a decade. When you've done one lap of Re- Richmond Park, you've done a million, you know, like I've done at least nine laps of Richmond Park every week for 12 years. And honestly, that has bored me to death with the place. Um, I think when you're new to London and you start cycling, Richmond Park is like a Shangri-La, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's brilliant. Um, but I'm an old soldier. I'm a bit cynical now. I've done far too many laps that it, to me, it's all the same. I, again, yeah. like, honestly, I'd rather ride my turbo trainer than ride around Richmond Park. Like, um, if, if you're a West Londoner, get out in the Surrey Hills. Oh my goodness. Like, you know, if it takes, if you, if, let's say you do four laps of Richmond Park, how many hours is that going to take? Is it an hour and a half, two hours, whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Just spend two hours in the Surrey Hills. The only, the only argument to choose a park over the Surrey Hills or Kent or wherever you live in London, um, the only argument is if you get a puncture or a severe mechanical, you can still get to work on time or you can still get home easily versus being stranded somewhere in Surrey or Kent, uh, miles away from your place of work or your house and you're fucked, mm. um, which I've nearly been on a few occasions. Uh, I remember... Once I, I love riding fixed gear, especially in the winter. I ride fixed gear all the time because yeah. you only have a chain to clean, and it, it's brilliant. It's like old school training as well, you know, and I'm from that old school generation. But yeah. um, I can remember before work trying to squeeze in 100k um, up early somewhere out in um, not too far from where you live, actually, Cam. Uh, mm. uh, like in that direction towards Woking, uh, I got a puncture. Uh, I, fine, okay, let's go and fix it reach into my back pocket, I forgot to, to take my track nut spanner because, you know, on a fixed wheel, you use a 15 oh, millimeter no. spanner to take your, your track nuts yeah. off. I was like, oh, my God, I didn't take my track nut. I haven't got my spanner. I can't take my front wheel off to fix it. What the fuck am I going to do? It's like I'm in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing here. So I ended up breaking into some fucking shed in someone's house, hoping that they had some tools in their shed. Like This is like what? half five in the morning. Like breaking into a shed. Oh my god! 
and luckily, like inside the shed, there was a little toolbox. And a little I didn't want to knock on the door and wake them up. I was very, you know, polite about my great. But, um, and I put everything back and cleaned it. It's fine. But like, you know, if I was in Richmond Park, I could have just walked home, you know, like, so there's that. That's the only benefit to cycling in Richmond Park or Regent's Park. Is that there's society around you. Yeah. You've sent Cam to another level. <laughs> it's it's yeah. stomach hurt. <laughs> yeah, we've all been there. Kind of. Uh, definitely haven't broken into someone's house yet. <laughs> I don't condone my behaviour, you know. But uh, so needs, uh, needs must. Yeah. Uh, I think this. Uh, what is your? I guess I'm going to ask you it in this way. What's your mm. favourite cafe stop? I guess around London or around, the, I guess where you live oh. currently. And then because you seem to go. I don't know why I said seem. You do go to a Mallorca every year. It would be mm. nice if you uh, give a Mallorca, I guess, cafe stop as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so favourite cafe stop, full stop, is Giro Cycles in Isha. Uh, and, and that is because... Oh. Hi, Jordan. On, Looking forward to having you on the podcast. I hope you're watching, Jordan. That would be great. So Giro Cycles in Isha. Jordan co-founder owner of of Giro uh, honestly one of the most incredible human beings I've had the pleasure to meet uh, um, and uh, he is genuine authentic kind open honest and he's built the most amazing community of people um, at, through his cafe Giro in Isha he's just built this amazing community of people that support each other in the best possible ways. And apart from all that loveliness, like the coffee's just great. Like uh, yeah. Jordan uses workshop coffee beans. I love workshop coffee. The filter coffee is amazing. The espresso is great. Like it's just a nice place to have coffee. You can guarantee a good cup of coffee, great pastries, and you will always see a friendly face, um, uh, someone you know there. And it's just, um, yeah, great place to be. Um, in Mallorca, okay, you want to talk coffee, just coffee? Yeah. Like, I'll be frank, like, Spanish coffee in general just tastes like fag ash. Oh. Ah, it's just, <laughs> it's just, <laughs> just, burnt, just burnt with, um, like, long-life milk. So if you go to any cafe in Mallorca and you ask for, like, a, a cortado, you'll get some fag ash espresso with some long-life milk, and it's disgusting. Yeah. So um, I'm just generalizing. It's the same in the UK. You know, if, 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 if I was a tourist coming to London and I went to Costa, I'd think the yeah. exact same thing. <laughs> so, you know, just generally coffee is pretty poor in Mallorca. But there is a place in um, uh, Poyenza, the, the old town, yeah. called uh, La Mar Dolca, and their coffee is good. So if you're in, um, if you're in the north of the island... Lamar Dolca in uh, the old town of Poyenza, amazing coffee. If you're in the south of the island, the only reliable good cup of coffee is probably Rafa. Go to Rafa. Okay. You can guarantee, like, I, I'm not sure what they're serving at the moment, but they usually use Colonna coffee. They're a roastery in Bristol area. That's really good. Um, yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, I'm going to Mallorca in April, so I'll oh, see. Uh, I will send you 
all of my recommendations. Perfect. It's meant to be a relaxing holiday with my girlfriend, but bike oh, rentals are always all, you know, on the tab next to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll send you some, oh, well, I'll send you a bit of both, you know, bikey yeah. stuff and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, tourism. Amazing. Thank you, Gareth. We've spoken about some likes here, um, but what what would you say you most dislike about cycling? It could be anything. It could be, I guess, how people's mentality, or it could be about a product. Whatever, whatever, whatever floats your boat. God, Cam, are you expecting a a rant from me? Mate, I've spoken to you. I've spoken, I've, spoken to you I've spoken to you so often on WhatsApp or over DM, but. You've, you can yeah. do whatever you need to do, girl. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have to be one. It can be many. You can list if you need to. Uh, okay. I, I give one of my dislikes. Uh, I, I'm going to, I'm just going to massively self-cannibalize myself here. <laughs> but um, cycling influencers that don't really ride their bikes <laughs> wind me up slightly. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> So can you define not riding their bike? Is there like a so just... if, if if you go out with the intention of shooting content for your <laughs> brand ambassadorships or whatever, you will achieve that. Yeah. But you won't really be riding your bike, you know. So if 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 you if you measure the quality of your ride by the picture you took to impress and get likes versus going out to ride your bike to enjoy yourself or to train hard or whatever your motivations are. Mm. I find that, um, yeah, really obvious as well. You know, like the way to be a good influencer ambassador is to go out and live your life and document it. Then you will produce inspiring content that people can relate to or people want to achieve for themselves. If you go out with the intention of shooting content, you're probably creating crap content and no one wants to see that. People want to, you know, so, social media is like oh, so again like i could really self-cannibalize here really guilty yeah. of being on social media and promoting brands that i believe in never brands that i don't believe in and i have done that in the past when i was a lot younger and more naive and more keen to try and assert myself as someone in the cycling world yeah um, but now i'm much older and much more at one with who i am. i know who i am I don't need to please other people. I just need to, to, to you know, uh, live my life to the best of my ability. And yeah, should we talk? Yeah. So in terms of things that I dislike, I dislike a previous version of myself that probably was very guilty of going out to shoot content versus going out to live my life and document yeah. it. Um, and I think on social media, you know, if a brand reaches out to you and says, hey, do you want to, I will gift you some products um, and, you know, give us a plug on social media. You're like great because what that does is it, it kind of uh, it, it makes you feel valued. It, it, it's kind of like, um, but but really, you should value yourself based on your own opinions of yourself, not of what an external person, what their opinion of you is. You know, like you don't need you don't need other people's approval. You just need to be who you are. And uh, uh, and so, like in the past, when I was much younger, when brands reached out to me. Some of them are brands that I still work with today because I love their products and um, uh, their brand values align with my own. There are many mistakes I've made along the way. Like, remember once a manscaping 
brand reached out to me and was like, oh, Gareth, you're a cyclist, you shave your legs. Would you want to plug some manscaping devices for us? And I was just like, I don't think so. It's going to turn my <laughs> channel into an OnlyFans kind of vibe. But like when you're young, well. when you're young and you're keen and eager to be successful and, you know, mm. get likes, you kind of say yes to that stuff. So... Yeah, I think my plea, I'm, I'm going to sound, I'm just sounding so old and cynical, aren't I? You know? <laughs> no, I, I think um, <laughs> this comes delayed love. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think social media is a, is a minefield. Like, like, uh, social media is brilliant. Like here's an example. My nan, rest in peace, nan, I love you. She once rode from Land's End to John O'Groats to raise money for the local... Uh, girl guides so they could uh, yeah. buy a minibus so they could go on adventures uh, amazing she wrote letters to people across the country from all the cycling clubs along the country that they'd met through racing you yeah. know through wales and nor up north uh, and she wrote to her friends and they all came out on the roadside to support her give her a little musette bag of food to help her cycle oh, that's amazing nice you know i'm just like fucking hell if in the you know the, the, the 80s and 90s someone could do that with a pen and paper why in this day and age when we have social media do people not do much more powerful things with it you know like how are we using social media to to change the world and to connect with each other versus um just using it as like a a, a source of fake news and advertising you know it's um yeah, there's there's my miserable old man rant about about influencing and social yeah. media. Well, it could it could c continue on because we, we we move on to white beard propaganda. All right, where, let's do it. Where 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 do you stand on white beards? Is Cam going to be ecstatic with your answer, or are you going to smash his heart into a thousand pieces? I, I'm going to smash Cam's heart into a thousand pieces. <laughs> I, I'm going to start with this analogy of. Um, <laughs> have you ever ridden behind someone who's wearing regular bib shorts but they've worn out and you can see their ass crack because oh, yeah. their, their shorts are so okay. old and worn out that the light has gone really thin like white bib shorts do that from day one um and the hint the smallest hint of rain or uh, or, 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 or or sweat is only going to accentuate um, one's self to one's cycling comrades. <laughs> um, so would you say they look better. Would they look better in Mallorca than England? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where I stand with them. I'm very classic cycling. Like I want black bib shorts, white socks, etc., yeah. etc. Uh, I, I love the classic aesthetic. White bib shorts. I think if you are someone like Matthew Vanderpoel. Um, oh, yeah. you can probably rock it. Yeah. Um, but mostly I don't really have a strong opinion because I just think I've got my opinions of what I choose for myself. What other people choose for their bodies is just, it doesn't affect me. It's not relevant to me. People can identify however they choose. And I don't have a strong opinion about how people choose to dress. So Cam, you do you rock it. It's great. Crack on. Literally. You do it right to reply, Cam. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I would uh, wait to reply. Um, so, so 
I mean, maybe I won't reply, but maybe I will say, Pints and Pave, will we see you in a skin suit or in white bibs? A skin suit. Okay. If, Did you I were, if you were provided with white shorts, would you ever wear them or would they just be there? It, personally, if I had a choice, I would pick <laughs> the black ones. If someone gifted me the white ones, I'd say, no, thank you. If I didn't have any other bib shorts to wear and it was white bib shorts or no bib shorts, I'd wear the white bib shorts. Um, yeah, maybe I, I'm going to just backtrack on myself there. Like, So it's a maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty open-minded. <laughs> try anything once, you know. Like, I, 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 tr- I really try not to have opinions of anything. Like, just go in with an open mind. Um, yeah, I, I'm... I'm Stepping back from this whole conversation, starting from the beginning, white bib shorts, yeah, try it. You might find that certain weather conditions hold you back from looking your best self. But, um, yeah, you do you. Yeah. I'll have a go. Yeah. The idea. I know. Yeah. I feel very self-conscious. The idea that we're doing is that um, we're going to be contacting one of the uh, potentially leading skin suit companies in the UK that now have a, a former British TT champion as their ambassador. And as part of yes. the uh, pending website thing is that we will not be doing jerseys, but we will only be doing skin suits. Sustainability. Sustainability. Yeah. Where my mind is more sustainable. I'm a big fan of skin suits. Let's, yeah, like full white skin suits, white bibs, white, well, white onesies, white onesies. Actually, my son was wearing a white onesie this morning. It was the cutest thing ever. He looked like an angel, looked like such a cherub. You know, a little peloton of spin cyclists, <laughs> all in white, would look like absolute angels. <laughs> look like cherubs on the road. <laughs> Go for it. Cycling togas. Uh, yeah, cycling togas. All off to get christened or something, you know? <laughs> uh, and then the uh, uh, our final our final section yeah. on, uh, in this Q&A is couples or mountains, like, I guess, watching and doing. Yeah, that's really easy for me. Um, I love watching cobbled races. Like, I don't really, these days... I don't really watch the Tour de France, the Giro d'Italia, the Welter. I just don't have the time to invest in 20 stages plus. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I just can't do it. Um, I catch the highlights if I'm interested. But the couple classics I watch religiously. They are the most exciting races in the world. And, um, you know, the Tour of Flanders is my favourite race. Full stop. Yeah. Uh, then Paris-Roubaix, then Strada Bianca. Um, the three favourite races. Uh, the World Championships are usually great as well but um i used to be like i've been many different versions of a cyclist um uh, and uh, i've been a 95 kilogram sprinter believe it or not i've been a 58 kilogram climber now i'm a 70 kilogram all-rounder um that has a tendency to be a good climber so uh more of a puncher on uh Within the context of my abilities, I'm, I'm a puncher within my pay grade, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, previously, there's nothing I've loved more than doing the Tour of Flanders Sportive or just the, just the parkours with my friends um, and really being like a bit of a cobble specialist. But 
as I got lighter, cobbles became a lot more painful and I was much less effective on them. Um, yeah. uh, so as, as, a, as a spectator, the cobbled races, the best in the world. As a cyclist, for me, it's mountains. Like my, my, uh, my picture of heaven is an endless climb. Like if you just put me on a climb that never stopped and said, Gareth, crack on, I would just enter this zen-like state of inner peace as I can, you know, infinity looped this imaginary mountain of mine. But um, yeah, I, for me, cycling is climbing as an experience. And the cobbled races in northern France and Belgium, like uh, they are the best races to watch. Track racing too. I love watching track racing. Nice. How long ago did you do the Tour of Flanders Sportive? I think the last time I did it was 2017. Last time? Um, I was good at it then. Y yeah. How many times have you done it? But it won't be my last time. I'll do it again. Yeah. Yeah, what kind of setup were you, was running then? Because I guess, what, 2017, everyone was still on, what, round 25s? Maybe venturing into 28s? Oh, yeah, good question. I was running, uh, when I did the Sportive, I rode a steel frame Colnago with uh, 25 millimeter tires. <laughs> yeah. If you, did it, if you did it again, would you use your current bike or would you purposely get a, like a, a special bike for riding on the cobbles I, I just ride my bike be great like the, the 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 flemish cobbles are pretty smooth you know yeah they're fine um as long as you chuck i'd chuck on a 28 28 tire and pretty much surf over everything um yeah perfect uh cam anything you'd like to add no i think that's it uh, actually a nice long podcast for everybody to listen to this time you know as we said at the start, Gareth's been in cycling for, for a long time, lots of great stories. Um, Gareth, maybe to mm. take us out of the show, where can people find you mm. and what can they expect next from you? Um, people, Where can people find me? I, I'm, a, I'm an introvert. You can't find me anywhere. <laughs> Don't come looking for me. But if you do want to find me, I'm on Instagram. It's my name, Gareth Winter. Uh, any support, you know, I, I always appreciate um, when people follow me and I want people to follow me because they're interested in my journey um, and the, uh, the message that I try to promote. And that is, you know, to, to just get out there and ride your bike. <clears throat> um, uh, what's next for me? Uh, that's a really good question. I think I'm currently in a position right now where I'm redefining my entire life, my uh, entire career and my relationship with cycling. Um, just having a period right now where um, I'm looking to create my next chapter. Um, so it's a really ambiguous answer, um, but uh, just just stay in touch, you know. Um, I've got a lot of time for anyone that's in, into cycling. So if you've got questions for me, just comment, you know, I'll do my best to reply. Um, I think <clears throat> one final statement that I just want to make clear is that people's perception of me through social media or having met me or seen me from afar, people often think, oh, Gareth's that like uber cycling elitist snob. You know, maybe I <laughs> don't really want to approach him. It's hard, you know, I look a bit like a Bond villain. 
you know, <laughs> quite hard-faced and very, very smile. <laughs> you know, I don't smile because I've got terrible teeth. Like, they've all been knocked out. It's like, you know, just... Also, just you do look like that. Am, but, with the avatar you know, no. with the hair. Uh, absolutely. I, um, I, I've spent so much time on Swift, I have become my avatar. Uh, <laughs> David Brailsford has turned me into... Yeah. No, um, you know, one, one thing I always just try to communicate to people is, yes, I have the appearance and may seem like a complete elitist, um, and, and, but actually, I, you know, people, there's so many negative connotations attached to the word elite. Um, uh, and for most people, elite means everyone else is excluded. You know, it's just you and your little elite club. But, but um, in terms of me, I demand the best from myself. I demand the best from my equipment. I only work with the best manufacturers, brands, etc. That doesn't mean that I'm not uh, an inclusive person. Like at Team Sky, uh, it wasn't just about winning the Tour de France and Olympic gold medals, etc., etc., World Championships. We had this whole uh, second division, which was called Inspiration to Participation. Yeah. And through um, through Inspiration to Participation, we inspired 1.6 million people to get on a bike in the UK. And that doesn't mean shave your legs and get a power meter. That means um, jump on whatever bike is in your shed, your garage, borrow it from a friend and just ride it. And I truly want um, the UK and London to become a cycling nation and the only way that that can happen is that every type of cyclist is welcome, is seen, is nurtured, uh, uh, and that no one feels like they don't belong on a bike. You know, if, if, if someone's on a bike and they feel like they don't belong with the group of people they're with, or they don't belong on the road because of the way that a motorist is treating them, that's not what I want for anyone. Like, um, yeah, so my closing statement is, despite my appearances, I... Um, I love cycling completely and in my life have ridden a mountain bike, a BMX, a fixie, a Dutch bike. And I just think that cycling is the most beautiful sport in the world. It's the most beautiful way to transport yourself in this world. It teaches you everything about life. And the more people that do that, and the more that, you know, podcasts like this can spread that message, yeah. the, the better society becomes for everyone who chooses a bike for whatever reasons. For some people, a bike is a necessity. It's their way to travel to their place of work or their way to see people that they need, you know, family that they need to see. For other people, it's a complete recreation. Like for me, it's just a sport. It's like a beyond that it's a way of life and so you know um yeah cycling has given me everything and the gift that my grandparents and parents gave to me of cycling is the greatest gift i could ever receive yeah. you know that's the greatest thing you can in inherit from someone is is a, a passion and uh, a, a kind of uh, an, uh a window into the kind of what life can be i've gone off on a massive rant again <laughs> But yeah, we, we we love we love your rants, Gareth. Um, and I think your passion just shows through. As the, although the listeners won't know, we've been speaking for nearly two hours with you. Uh, yeah, this is probably yeah. Gonna be one of our longest podcasts. But it was really interesting hearing you about um, talk about Sky, Team Sky, your own personal goals, how even in I guess dad life you're still 
pushing your bike and pushing the limits and i find it quite inspiring uh and i'm sure cam definitely does as well yeah yeah i mean we've spoken for two hours i could st- i could keep going for another f- five you know it's it's um you know there's so many things i probably wanted to say that i haven't said because i started rambling about something else so um you know if anyone's got any questions i'll do my best to answer great well gareth thanks for being on the podcast and um maybe we'll do a part two yeah and thanks thanks for inviting me it's um you know when you when you leave the m25 i definitely feel like i'm completely irrelevant i'm from a generation of cycling that has passed its time um and so to yeah just to reconnect with you guys has been great cool well gareth winter thank you goodbye from me